we need a revolution after all if we're going to get nature back quickly and at the scale that we need to to solve climate change and biodiversity loss then you're going to ruffle feathers, literally. And I think that is a good thing, that rewilding has great ambition attached to it. Welcome to another episode of Rewilding the World with me, Ben Goldsmith. Several people have written to me since I launched the first series of this uh, Rewilding the World podcast to ask, what does rewilding actually mean? And there's a danger, I suppose, for those of us that really love the idea of rewilding nature, that we talk in language that is new to people and they don't really know what the concepts are about. So I asked two of my closest friends in the rewilding movement to join me for a discussion today. One is Isabella Tree, whose book, Wilding, has been a blockbuster bestseller during the last few years. And the new book, The Book of Wilding, which is like a cookbook to advise people on how they can go about restoring nature, no matter what kind of place they're in be it a suburban garden or a school or an arable landscape or the wilds of the Highlands of Scotland. And I've got Alistair Driver with me as well, who is the director of Rewilding Britain and who's an enormously effective advocate and advisor for rewilders across Britain. Um, thank you, Izzy and Alistair, so much for joining us. So I grew up with a, with a deep love of nature, the kind of fascination for nature that I think infects all children from an early age. You know, find a child that isn't obsessed with a with a frog or or a bird's nest with blue eggs inside it. And I think lots of children leave that fascination to some extent behind in childhood. Um, I didn't. I, I, I grew into an adult that was even more fervently passionate about nature and wildlife than I had been as a child. And even in, in the kind of height of my teenage years, I wrote a letter to Country Life suggesting that their rural readership lack imagination on the subject of bringing wild boar back to Britain. And I got a star letter award and a pair of binoculars. And I didn't tell my friends necessarily about that small triumph. But it indicates that I cared a lot about nature and rewilding from the start. And it wasn't called rewilding, this idea of putting back missing species and, and restoring the kind of healthy functioning or the kind of natural integrity of, of how nature works. The world re rewilding is something new to me. I came across it in the book that George Monbiot wrote, Feral. So I, I guess the best way to start this discussion is to ask Izzy, what does the word rewilding mean to you? Well, I mean, I love it as a word because it is it is so difficult to pin down. And I think it, it's a word that rewilds itself the whole time. I think it's really about putting nature in the driving seat. So kind of accepting a sort of a role that's more humble, perhaps, than we're used to as human beings and handing over to nature. So whether you're doing that when you're trying to restore nature in a big landscape or you're rewilding an institution. I think we, we kind of know what it means. It, it means giving more to sort of instincts and natural processes, stepping back as human beings. Alistair, would you agree with that? Uh, I would agree with it. When I speak, obviously, I, I often have to start my lectures and media interviews with a, a simple, as I describe it, tweetable definition, uh, which is far more boring than the, the lovely description that Izzy has just given. So I describe it very simply as the large-scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. And I have to have a clear, precise definition because it is very important that people understand how it differs 
from other types of nature conservation and restoration and nature-friendly farming, etc. So I start with that, but then I obviously have to qualify what we mean by large scale and talk about spectrum, etc. It was always my dream growing up that I'd have a piece of land in which I could allow nature to flourish. And I was really privileged enough in my late 20s, married with young children, to be able to buy a small farm in South Somerset. And when I first got here in 2009, my immediate assumption was if I want nature, I've got to have trees. So what I did was um, with the agent who advised me is I decided on a tree planting scheme on 40 acres out of 140. So we'd continue to farm pretty conventionally the rest and we'd plant woodland at one end. And that woodland is fantastic. I mean, it's been really exciting watching those trees grow. And during that successional time, there's been an explosion in the number of songbirds and, and butterflies and so on. But I noticed that it's starting to become a little dark. The trees are the same age. It is a little bit of a mixed tree farm. It's not nature, perhaps, as we might expect to find in the Apennine Mountains or in, in Spain's Cantabrian Hills, where you've got great kind of mosaic wood pastures. The missing ingredient, of course, are the natural processes that, that make trees fall over, that create openings and gaps and create complexity. I think that's the great insight of Isabella's and and Charlie's experiment at NEP and as laid out in the book Wilding the great insight is animals are much more vital than we previously understood and so during my journey here in Somerset I've started to talk more and more about rewilding rather than just simple woodland creation or habitat creation and um, we're following the NEP playbook here and a thing that has surprised me is the degree of vitriol that is directed towards the word rewilding so even people who come with preconceived ideas, they walk around and they see this kind of re-emergent wood pasture here and they see my longhorns milling about, which came from NEP, and they find it beautiful. But if we use the term rewilding in our discussion, it provokes a really dramatic reaction in some people. Izzy, why, why do you think that is? I think because it's it's something new and something exciting. I think you can't really have it both ways. If you're if you're going to do something that it makes dramatic change and we need a revolution after all if we're going to get nature back quickly and at the scale that, that we need to to solve climate change and biodiversity loss, then you're going to ruffle feathers literally. And I think that that is a good thing that rewilding has great ambition and t attached to it. But I have to say that, you know, my book, I called it Wilding because I was trying to, to kind of calm down some of those critics because a lot of people see the re-prefix as being a bit difficult because, you know, as if we're trying to capture a Garden of Eden that existed before human impact. And that's obviously not anything that we could possibly do. So I think it's important to stick with rewilding, but in places like Scotland or Wales or even Canada, I was talking to a, a professor from Canada yesterday in Cambridge University who was saying that the rewilding word is toxic in Canada because it has colonial connotations. Then don't use the word rewilding, you know, you use nature restoration or something else that will fit. It's the, it's the same thing. You know, do whatever works. But I, I love the word rewilding because of its ambition and because it is so all embracing and holistic and flexible. Alistair, the, the criticism levelled at rewilding that I see so often in, in your Twitter conversations and in the debates that you participate in revolve mostly around food security in a British context. So how do you answer that, that criticism? How are we going to feed ourselves if we, if we rewild the land? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, one of the main reasons that people are 
anti the word rewilding is because they are presuming that we are talking about the very top end of the spectrum. You know, wolves and bears and land abandonment is how I often summarise that that attitude and that state. And that quite frankly, you know, we're nowhere near that in this country and we probably never will be because we're just such a densely populated country. So the first thing I do is explain to people that, that there is a spectrum of activity and that because we're missing all of these apex predators and we're missing most of the large herbivores, we need to utilise proxies for that, uh, for those, you know, for the bison, the elk, the the beaver and the boar in most cases. We need proxies and those proxies are rare breed cattle and pigs. And if if you're using those proxies to help create that mosaic, that heterogeneity of vegetation that you were just talking about, then we need to then be the wolf to actually manage those populations of herbivores. Uh, and if we're going to be the wolf or be the lynx, then we, we should be harvesting and eating those herbivores, just as we would do you know, thousands of would have done thousands of years ago. You know, and I also have to keep reminding people that Homo sapiens is a species which belongs in this rewarding environment every bit as much as a butterfly or or uh, a small mammal, an insect, it's another type of insect, etc. So we belong here. The challenge is, can we be here without impacting detrimentally on the rest of the ecosystem? And the simple answer to that is, yes, we can. We know what to do and we know how to do it. But because of this slightly compromised position of rewilding in this country, we are still producing food. And the amount of food at the moment, based on all the stats we've got, is approximately 50%. Yeah, and of course, that's set against a context of the least productive 20% of our land producing less than 2% of the total food output. So, I mean, there's great swathes of our country that are simply not agriculturally productive. Yeah, and actually... Looking at all the stats from, I've now got, we've now got 50 sites worth of data for England, and the stats clearly show that the main trend is a significant reduction in sheep numbers and a slight increase in cattle numbers and pig numbers. That's how it's going. And the overall impact is 50% of the livestock units. Yeah, I, th- I think the, f- the food security arguments around rewilding and our protected and other agriculturally marginal landscapes are patently nonsense because those landscapes are really not making a dent in national food production. You know, if we're interested in food security, we need to look at things like waste. You know, approximately 50% of the food yeah. we produce in this country uh, is wasted between uh, farm and fork. We need to look at things like the use of our best land to grow food for machines rather than people. Yeah. Um, in the form of bioenergy. And we eat too much, Ben, as well. That's the other thing. We're, all, we're eating too much as a society. Uh, we're eating the wrong kinds of food. So there are so many other things that need fixing before rewilding is likely to have any significant impact. But I think a more valid criticism is the one that suggests that perhaps rewilding is about removing people and their culture from the land. And, and this fact that the cattle domestic proxies for the wild oryx that were once here is a keystone species and absolutely vital in the restoration of these mosaic wood pastures that that once blanketed our hills and remoter landscapes. That is the silver bullet because it shows that we need the farmer to stay in the land because the farmer has the cattle and we need the cattle. So rewilding is not about clearing people from the land. And your study that was published 18 months ago showed that there was a doubling of employment in landscapes that are being rewilded in Britain and a huge increase in the number of volunteers and other visitors to these landscapes. Yeah, well, the current figure is 80%, an 80% increase in full-time equivalent jobs on rewilding sites compared with traditional farming beforehand, which is fantastic, you know, and, and it's only going to increase further. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's always seen, I think, in, particularly in the media as a sort of um, all or nothing, you know, that rewilding is pitted against farming. But I think it's much more integrated than that. We're always going to need productive farmland to produce food. But where rewilding works is acting as the kind of life support system for agricultural systems. So it can restore the water table, it provides protection against flooding for farmland, it provides physical buffers against extreme weather events, which we're going to get a lot more of, so actual protecting crops from wind blow. But it's also providing the pollinating insects, it's providing the natural pest control. We had an amazing survey done here recently on dung beetles and on an organic farm neighbouring us, a master student from Imperial College counted 500 dung beetles and on NEP she counted nearly 12,000 in the same day. And what's happening on an organic farm, obviously, is you're bringing your livestock in over winter, which is depriving the dung beetles of food, which they're, they're active all year round. So what will happen on that organic farm when they let their animals out in the spring is all the dung beetles from NEP will just be piling in on the new fresh dung on that organic farm. So endlessly replenishing the species that are lost through the simple farming cycle. So I think we should look at rewilding as really being that life support system for farming. It's, it's integral to the food security issues we're talking about. A really interesting word that we used earlier was spectrum. The idea that there is a spectrum of rewilding. So rewilding in Alaska looks very different from rewilding in Regent's Park, London. I think that that's an idea that is lost on on people who are new to this concept. They think that rewilding is about making everything like Alaska, and that's simply not the case. Now, how would you address that point, Alistair? Well, what I try to do is explain how this spectrum, what it looks like, and uh, and let's go to straight to the top of the spectrum where everything is totally natural and man is having no impact whatsoever detrimentally. Man is part of the system as one of thousands of species, but everything is as it should be. And in that situation, you've got all your apex predators back. You've got all the large herbivores back. There's no pollution, no habitat control, no significant management. We are living a, a, a genuinely sustainable existence. We're not likely to get that in this country in the foreseeable future, certainly not in my lifetime. You know, we, it's going to take a long time for us to get to the point where we've got wolves and lynx, particularly back and all the other apex predators that we should have and all of the large herbivores. So that's level five on a five point spectrum for me. Come down a notch to level four. Level four is achievable. Level four is not all of the apex predators and not all of the large herbivores, but certainly species like lynx and beaver and boar, for example. And the only difference between that and level five is that we are using some livestock, rare breed, extensive livestock grazing. But otherwise, everything else has been restored and is natural. That's level four. And we are getting to that point at scale in parts of Scotland, for example, in this country. Come down another level, level three, that's where most of the rewilding sites are in this country at the moment. That's where all the English and Welsh sites certainly are at. That, for me, is Nep, Ennerdale, Ken Hill, Horswater, all of these sites that people are becoming familiar with. And in that situation, you're using these extensive uh, cattle and pigs, uh, and you're still in the process of restoration. You're still doing quite a few things that are the same as nature restoration. 
Um, Izzy, in, in your new book, the Book of Wilding, you you talk about rewilding in in a suburban garden or in a in a, in a churchyard. Anyone seemingly can participate at some level in the rewilding of nature. Absolutely. And I feel it's a little problematic, actually, having a hierarchical structure like that. I, I wonder, you know, if that's that's a little sort of dictatorial. I think it's easier to think of a spectrum on a level plane because, you know, the wilderness areas we, we think are pristine, but actually, you know, the human impact has already been colossal in those. We've already influenced the planet to such a degree. There is no such thing as no pollution. So, I think what we should be looking at is much more pragmatic about where we can be rewilding every inch of of soil that we have any jurisdiction over. There is no too small. Um, You can rewild a window box. You know, if you're thinking in terms of natural processes and and you're being the, the, the sort of the keystone species, you're planting for pollinating insects and those might be night flying moths as well as bees. You're really thinking about natural processes when you're doing something. That is rewilding. And one of the key themes, I think, of rewilding is connectivity. So when you're thinking about your window box, if um, you can persuade your neighbours to have window boxes or to plant climbers up their walls to green their buildings, then you become part of a sort of stepping stones or corridor. If you have trees in your street, the insects are going to find it easier to, to find your window box. So I think everyone should be feel like they can be involved. I think it's um, hugely important anyway when you're you're trying to do something as transformative as getting 30% of our landmass back to nature, let alone the 50% that the great American biologist E.O. Wilson recommends. You know, we've got to think not just in terms of scale, but everywhere and everybody. Can I just come back on that? I absolutely agree with that. And this is one of the challenges around explaining to people that there is a spectrum of activity and it is that we will need to keep reminding people that just because you might be in the middle of that spectrum doesn't mean you're not as good as a site that is at the top of the spectrum in biodiversity terms and in terms of mitigating the impacts of climate change and human health etc it's very important that we we keep stressing that that they can all be on the same level in terms of value to the environment and to people but it's it's our it's a way that we're we're still working on this at Rewild in Britain. We're still developing our thinking, but I think it is important that we explain to people that the type of wilding that's rewilding that's happening at the moment is not necessarily that which might happen in the wilds of Canada or Africa, etc. Yeah, one one of the most rewarding things that I've been part of, and both Izzy and Alistair were part of it, of course, has been the Rewilding London Task Force. And during one of the consultation meetings, we talked to the Environment Minister of Maharashtra which is the state of India in which Mumbai is found. And he said to me that um, we don't want to think of Mumbai as a city of buildings with some trees between the buildings. We want to think of Mumbai as a great forest with some buildings between the trees. So there's a huge tree planting program. Absolutely wonderful, weaving nature right back through the fabric of that city for, for providing shade, providing fruit, bringing wildlife into the city, cleaning the air and doing all sorts of wonderful things. And the Rewilding London Task Force came out with its report on World Rewilding Day, March 20th, 2023, with a series of recommendations and a bunch of new funding for doing just that, for creating corridors and patches and streaks of nature right in the centre of our city. And I think the reason why this is so important, beyond the kind of pragmatic, tangible, quantifiable benefits of healthy nature, I think is the idea that nature should be a right for every person on the basis that nature is essential 
for people on a visceral level. The, the, the Japanese health service is now proactively prescribing forest bathing there's such that people are given a chit and they're given a bit of funding for public transport and they're told to spend time in nature as part of their healing. Because we know now that trees and other plants produce compounds that make us feel better, that lower our heart rate, lower our blood pressure. Nature is in a permanent state of communication with us, much of which is just a mystery. We don't understand why or how. We just know it works. We know that patients in hospital rooms overlooking nature heal faster than those who can't see any trees beyond the window. And so I think this idea of, of the magic, the kind of intangible magic of nature being brought into the orbit of all people as a kind of essential human right is very, very exciting. Certainly the, the decision here in Somerset, my place, to go whole hog and to, to emulate and draw inspiration from NEP and, and to, to do rewilding beyond the trees that we planted at the start came about during a very dark time. You know, we lost my daughter in an accident. And the, the first kind of rays of light that penetrated that all-engulfing darkness, for me, came in the form of immersion in nature. And I thought, to hell with it. Why don't I just do what my heart's telling me to do and prioritize nature here? Certainly my daughter Iris would have loved how the place has evolved during the last four years. And it's shown me that, that this, this spiritual need for nature that we have, I think, is perhaps the most important reason for rewilding and everywhere, you know, whether it's a spectrum or hierarchy, whether it's Alaska, whether it's central London, we've just got to get on with it. And I think now what's so exciting is that the, the task force in London is producing meaningful output. You, know, you walk around Primrose Hill now, which is where I spend time in London, and there are pockets of scrub emerging behind fences mm. and there's new natural reed beds and so on. It, it's kind of happening in the city, which I think is very exciting. We were very struck in lockdown, you know, when the, the first lockdown release and tens of thousands of people came to visit NEP, that innate instinct I think we have to to cure ourselves um, by, by reaching out to nature was so apparent. But what was, you know, striking to us was that everyone was coming in a car and having, you know, clogging up the, the lanes and people's driveways and it was absolute havoc. You know, we should be able to walk out of our door wherever we live um, straight into nature or into a corridor that gets us into a wonderful biodiversity hotspot. I think I agree, completely agree with you, Ben. It's, it's, a, it's a question of, of social justice. Absolutely. What I see is, is a great upwelling of love for nature and, and a kind of growing, unstoppable clamour for restoration, not just in Britain, but everywhere. And that's starting to percolate now our politics and our national discourse and, and certainly how we spend our time. And Alistair, you were recently at um, the Birch Selzen Hotel in Croydon within the M25, which is now rewilding the land for the purpose of creating this kind of experience for people. You know, what did you find there? Well, first of all, what we found was already pre-existing very special ancient woodland, coppice woodland, which was fantastic in its own right. But these rewilding fairways that they've got on this former golf course are already, in, within a couple of years, starting to show natural regeneration because they've got this wonderful seed source all around them. Uh, there's scrub and trees starting to appear in the grasslands. The grasslands themselves are pretty special. There were patches where there were lots of orchids, laid as bed straw, wild carrot, etc. So already, you know, they've got a great template. And, you know, the, one of the most important things, though, is not just, it's not just about rarity and diversity, it's bioabundance. The abundance of invertebrates and small mammals and birds that appears very quickly in these rewilding sites. And I see this time and time again, and I must just cite you this example that I've literally just received five minutes before this interview, where Wild Oakingham, which um, 
I'm working on near, north of Reading. They have just done a comprehensive butterfly survey of the site, and they have discovered 500 butterflies per hectare on average on this site. And if you extrapolate that to the 70 hectares of grassland that is rewilding, that's 35,000 butterflies on a 70 hectare site, which is truly astonishing, but it reminds us of what it should have once been. What it probably was, certainly when I was a child in roaming around as a feral child in the Cotswolds in the 60s. So, uh, you know, staggering numbers of invertebrates starting to return to these rewilding sites, and they're the building blocks for future ecology. Yeah, for me, rewilding is as much about abundance as diversity. And Izzy talks about this beautifully in, in her first book, Wilding. We've simply lost touch with the abundance that existed not so long ago in our world. You know, the, the abundance that we knew in our childhood and that, that many of us yearn for was nothing as compared with the abundance that existed in the childhood of our parents and similarly with their parents and with their parents, such that, that when we do get the recovery of species, we're simply blown away. I mean, I read recently that the Cayman Islands government was celebrating that 5,000 turtles bred last year on their beaches, which seems a lot given how, how low numbers had fallen until you realise that there were once a million sea turtle nests or thereabouts on those islands. You know, Christopher Columbus, sailing through the Cayman Islands, wrote a letter to his mother saying he can't sleep at night for the noise of turtles bouncing off the wooden hull of his ship. <laughs> and so we, we've lost touch with abundance. And when abundance does start to reappear, people often tend to complain. I mean, oh, there's far too many red kites. Of course, red <laughs> kites were extinct because of us quite recently. But in, Cori yeah. in Shakespeare's Coriolanus, London was the city of kites. And yes. kites are starting to recover to something which may be approaching their historic abundance. And people knee-jerk have this reaction, there's too many of them. Well, why? What are they doing? A flood defence engineer once said to me, I tell you what, there's a plague of kingfishers on the riverway now, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's... A because they've seen three. <laughs> We've had a few complaints in the campsite about nightingales keeping people awake all night. But I think that's absolutely true. And I think when we look at biodiversity, it's really, it's really tempting to just tick um, the species numbers. But actually, the abundance is, is hugely important. We had the British Trust for Ornithology here a couple of years ago, um, who now reckon that we probably have the biggest breeding population of songbirds in Britain. And that's on on NEP, you know, which has only been going for 20 years as a rewilding project. So what I love about rewilding is it's actually switching the baselines in the other direction. It's actually educating ecologists and conservationists to be more ambitious and to realise that actually the carrying capacity of our land is way more than we ever imagined. Yeah, and, and NEP hasn't just done that. It's also turned the whole conversation on its head around how nature works. I think that's the greatest triumph. It's revealed to us the vastness of the mystery of nature, interactions that had never been considered by lifelong scientist ecologists have emerged. And the interaction between pigs and willow and purple emperor butterflies is just one of countless patterns that we're starting to see at NEP. And, and all they do is show us how little we know. If we restore the basic natural processes, then nature will surely recover itself. The, the power of nature to heal itself is immense. And, and similarly, when we remove natural processes, then of course, ecosystems collapse. And there's a very neat correlation in the Highlands of Scotland with the great clearances, which tragically removed the people of the Highlands and their native cattle, which were a keystone species, along with the last beavers, the last wild boar and the last wolves, all in roughly the same period of history. 
And what happened? We got a complete ecosystem collapse. Like the arches of a medieval bridge, as the keystones were removed, the arches collapsed. And today, people who are disconnected from nature, but they yearn for connection, they just don't know where or how to find it, go to the highlands and they, they have poor mobile reception. They can see a long way. They see these dramatic hills and, and valleys and they take a picture and they put it on their Instagram and they call it wildness. And they don't realize that it's about as far from wildness as can be imagined in any European context. And that's why I think connection with nature is at the heart of this rewilding movement. I think the problem is a problem of consciousness in terms of our own understanding of and empathy for and connection with the natural world. And the physical manifestation of nature is the output of that problem of consciousness. Now, I was at a conservation dinner the other night for Asian elephants and King Charles stood up and made a very, very short speech after handing out an award to an ind- representatives of an indigenous community working on human wildlife conflict in southern India. And he said that the, the world's remaining indigenous people and their knowledge may represent humanity's last best hope. Mm. And I thought these words were so perfectly put because 80% of the world's remaining intact ecosystems are in the stewardship of indigenous people. And that's not a coincidence or an accident. It's because contact and connection with nature are at the very heart of their spiritual lives and their physical lives. And that's, I think, what rewilding's about for me. It's about rediscovering that intimacy with nature and that empathy for nature such that we can put ourselves back inside the miracle and restore biodiversity and, and bioabundance everywhere, whether it's central London or whether it's in the, the formerly wild hills of the highlands of scotland yeah absolutely and i think if we you know we know that just teaching children biology um, in a classroom and we've now got a natural history gcse coming online but that doesn't do it what really um, affects people and makes them change and become champions of the environment is the experience is actually being out there in nature and seeing something unexpected and connecting with it and so we have to get people back into into nature absolutely yeah Ben, this this reminds me that there's there's an angle that is now starting to develop, which is associated with this, and that is the engagement of volunteers in rewilding sites that is bringing fantastic health and well-being benefits to people. So again, we've got data on fifty sites, including NEP, across the country, and we know we're now able to show a twelve-fold increase in volunteer engagement across these 50 sites. We are now running it, you know, running into thousands and thousands of people being involved. We have 200 at NEP alone. Well, it's NEP's amazing. leading the way, that's for sure. But, um, you know, just half a dozen people in a remote village engaging in hands-on activity in a, in a great, exciting area, doing exciting things. Fantastic physical and mental health benefits of that. And, and this is true of rewilding projects all over the world. Um, I interviewed Alison Fox for a, one of these podcasts. Um, Alison is leading a massive 3.2 million acre rewilding project in northern Montana, which seeks to piece back together uh, a vast uh, functional prairie ecosystem with bison and pronghorn antelope and a full complement of carnivores and so on. And Alison has a very large number of inner city school children now coming out of various corners of both the northeast and um, northwest of the United States to spend time, two, three, four days camping in and immersing themselves in nature just to have positive experiences. Because once you've had those pos- positive experiences in nature as a child, they stay with you and they don't leave you. So I, th- I think that's vital. Izzy, on, on the Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart a smash hit podcast series... It was said that Ben Goldsmith and the other rewilders really want Britain to be half like Alaska and half like Kansas. 
<laughs> how would you how how would you concisely respond to that uh, um, suggestion? I've had a lot of run-ins with Rory Stewart, who's a friend, um, about exactly this. He's very much a cultural landscapes man, and I think that's um, it's difficult because I think you know Rory sees sees. Um, landscapes, you know, from quite a Victorian perspective. And I think what rewilding can do is set back that baseline to a time when people are still part of the landscape, you still have livestock, you still have agricultural systems, but it's actually richer in biodiversity. I think a lot of um, the problem is when, you know, we're talking about aesthetics and how we view our countryside. If you, as you said earlier, if you understand what's going on ecologically and you can see that that countryside is dysfunctional, then it's very difficult to continue considering it beautiful. I don't think it's an either or situation where you have intensive agriculture on the one hand. We've got to move to regenerative agriculture. We know intensifying chemical systems is a very um, short-sighted policy. That way, food security does not lie. So we've got to have regenerative, um, sustainable, biodiverse farming systems alongside rewilding. It's not going to look like Alaska, um, but let's hope that we do get wolves and bears one day. I read it once in a journal from the other side of the Atlantic that if you can rewild Iowa, you can rewild anywhere. <laughs> and I feel that the same is true in Britain. It's an island which has been intensively managed and cultivated and developed and populated for a very, very long time. Could say it's the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, one of the birthplaces of industrial agriculture. And now we have this burgeoning rewilding movement that is seeking to put back natural processes and restore vibrant nature in streaks and patches across our island. And I can't think of two people who've been more important to this movement than Izzy and and, and their great experiment at NEP and, and the two books that have come out. Anyone listening to this must buy the book of Wilding and Alistair, who's been a leading advisor and practitioner and who zips up and down the country every day, like a man on a mission, advising landowners and councils and NGOs on how they can go about rewilding their land. So I'm just so grateful to spend this time with you both and any time with you both. I'm, I'm your biggest fan, um, as someone once said. <laughs> Likewise, Ben, the feeling is totally mutual. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so lucky to have spent that time with Izzy and Alistair discussing you know, what rewilding really means to them um, and discussing the kind of main criticisms that are levelled at the idea of rewilding, as well as how we go about it from the kind of wildest landscapes to our inner cities. And I think just the idea that it is possible to restore great abundance everywhere if we choose to as a society. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you're enjoying this podcast series, be really grateful if you give us a five-star rating and leave a review. They really do help grow the podcast in advance of series two, which will be out very soon. Six new and exciting episodes. 